For teens, there's a lot to love about summer vacation, and one thing that kind of sucks, saying goodbye to your friends. In Anne Brashear's 2001 YA novel, The Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, lifelong pals Tibby, Bridget, Carmen, and Lena are dealing with their first ever summer apart. Having met in utero while their mothers were attending a prenatal yoga class, the girls have stayed crazy close in spite of their differences. Their differences are, in fact, one of the best parts about their group and about this story. Lena is flying to Greece to visit her grandparents. Bridget is going to soccer camp in Mexico. Carmen is visiting her dad in South Carolina. And Tibby is stuck at home in Bethesda, working at Walman's Pharmacy and helping her parents take care of her much younger siblings. Before each of them departs, they stumble upon a pair of jeans at a thrift store that magically fits each of their unique body types. The foursome buys the pants, agrees to send them to each other throughout the summer, and sets up some rules to make sure things run smoothly. And so begins the sisterhood. Joining me this week to discuss the sisterhood is Katie Hartman, who teaches special education to kindergartners through fifth graders in West Philadelphia. Katie also happens to have an awesome bookstagram, where she posts about reading and teaching. A former English and creative writing major, Katie loves sharing her passion for books with her students and the internet. And her account, Katie Fully Booked, is definitely worth a follow. Throughout this episode, Katie and I talk about each of the four members of the sisterhood and dive into some bigger questions too. How do virginity narratives and pop culture affect the way teen readers feel about relationships? How has the way we talk about depression and suicide changed in the last 20 years? How accurately do books portray the lingering effects of even the most loving of divorces? And why, oh why, do so many bad things have to happen to Tibby? Coming back to the Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants for this episode was a treat for me in so many ways, and I can't wait to hear what you think about this conversation. So make sure you're following us on social media. Find us at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and by searching the SSR Podcast on Facebook. It's time to put on your party pants, listeners. Let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Katie. Thank you so much for joining us on SSR. Hey, Allie. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. You have been a really loyal listener of the show, so I feel a little nervous having you on because I want you to have like a good experience on the other side of the of the microphone. It's going to be amazing. I'm really excited. Yay. So we are talking about the Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, which was your choice. And as always, we're going to start by having you share a little bit about why you picked it and your experience with this book. So I picked this. I actually hadn't read this when I was a kid. When it came out, it came out in 2001 or something. When it came out, I was really, really little. I was in elementary school. So um, this was a little above my age level at the time when it came out. And I remember seeing it in my school's library and seeing, I had a best friend growing up whose sister was seven years older than us and seeing her and her friends read this book. And I was really into it as like a concept, but then I would go to the library and they're like, you can't read this book, which also made me think like, wow, there must be some like 
dark sexual secrets in this book. So that's why I chose it. I was like, oh my God, it's going to be like so raunchy and whatever. As you know, it's not at all. I'm sure I just like literally was incapable of reading this at the time it came out. Right. Not that it had too much mature content, but I watched the movies. I love the movies. And the other thing, I feel like this is kind of a staple of like cultural references for our age of women or people in general. Like, I feel like when I share things with my friends or like joking, it's the sisterhood of the traveling iPhone or whatever, like whatever it is. And I went to Greece and people were like, wow, your pictures look so much like sisterhood of the traveling pants. So it's like in our cultural world, even if I didn't read it growing up. So I was excited about it. Well, the movie is to this day on all the time. Yeah. I think it's made like the ABC family slash Freeform now, I guess. I think it made that rotation over the years and it's been on, I think for a while it was like a big MTV movie. And so it came out in 2005, but it's still very much out there. And they've been teasing to a third movie for a long time now. Like the four actresses are best friends in real life, I think. And so they're always like sort of talking about how they want to get back together and do another movie. And there's still like four pretty prominent actresses, so... Yeah, it's It's kind of amazing. Like, it was a starting point for all four of them. I mean, they'd all done things before, but I feel like they were all sort of famous when it started, and now they're these big stars in their own right, which is pretty cool. So I did read the book, I think pretty soon after it came out. I would have been 11 when it came out, and it seems like the kind of book that I would have picked up, like, right after it published. I was probably a little young for some of the content, but I remember being like a little scandalized by it in uh, hindsight because I remember it being more of a middle grade book mm-hmm. and then reading it. I'm like, no, this is clearly YA. There's okay. enough sex in here. There's enough cursing in here that it's squarely for teens or older tweens, I guess. Mm-hmm. I saw the movie, loved the movie, and I think I read the other books in the series. There were four follow-ups. I think I read all but one because I think maybe I was in college when one of them came out, and so I had sort of aged out of it a little. Yeah. There was a book that came out called Sisterhood Everlasting, which is sort of like the adult title. It came out when I was working in book publishing a few years ago, and so I got, I think, a free copy, and that was a little disappointing. So for listeners who have not read Sisterhood Everlasting, I would have to say that it might ruin the series for you a little bit. So I'd stay away from that. But Katie, since this was your first experience opening Sisterhood of the Traveling Pans, what did you think as you got into it? Yeah, well, I think most of what I was expecting is based on having seen the movie a bunch of times. So it was interesting when some of the things that I thought weren't really accurate or true to the book, although the movie is fairly loyal to the book. The first thing I was surprised by, honestly, is that they're only 14. Mm. Because in the movie, they're 16. And to me, they read older. Most of the time they read a little older, but there are some moments where I remember. So that was the first thing that caught my eye. I was like, wait, these girls are younger than I thought they were going to be. Yeah, they're pretty savvy, especially, I mean, they're all savvy in their own ways. Mm -hmm. They all have a lot of growing up to do, which I'm sure we'll talk about more. But I think they each have these very mature moments, and it's hard to believe that they're only halfway through high school. Right. Was there one character that off the bat you felt like you related to the most? So to review for listeners, there's four best friends that are the Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. There's Tibby, Lena, Bridget, and Carmen. Of those four, was there one that you related to most, Katie? Yeah, I think reading it, I sort of found Carmen the most relatable. And I like Googled the book quickly and was looking at the movie. And I think like she's the one you're supposed to relate to. In the prologue, it's in her voice, even though it's not in her voice for the rest of it. She seemed like you could put 
any of your characteristics you could project onto her. Not that she didn't have her own personality, but she had the least defining characteristics that you're like, oh, I'm not like Bridget because I'm not this. I'm not like Lena because I'm not this. But we could all kind of be Carmen-ish. Yeah, and I think she's so passionate and you can find that passion and that sort of like fire in something, no matter who you are, like everybody feels that way about something. And I, I remember as a kid reading this being like, oh, I felt that excited, that angry about something. And it was neat to have a character that I felt like understood that level of passion for the things that I felt when I was 12 or 13 and reading this book. But you're right. She sort of does have the least defining characteristics, especially at the beginning. In the prologue, there's a line where she says, Sometimes it seems like we're so close we form one single complete person rather than four separate ones. We settle into types. Bridget the athlete, Lena the beauty, which I feel kind of bad for Lena that that's her like defining character. But anyway, yeah. Tibby the rebel and me Carmen, the what? The one with the bad temper, but the one who cares the most, the one who cares that we stick together. So as you said, like she doesn't necessarily feel that she fits into any archetype. And I don't think we see that really as the reader either. Right. And yeah, and it's interesting because in the movie they have that same line and they make her out to be like the one who loves school or the studious one, which I identified with as now and as a kid. So I was like, okay, if that is supposed to be her character type, then I'm down for that too, even though I didn't really feel that that was like a big defining part of her character. Yeah, in the movie, she's it's definitely more about school. Like, she's the brainiac in the group. And that line sort of reminds me of The Breakfast Club. I don't know if you're a fan of mm-hmm. 80s movies, but that line reminds me so much of the last scene of The Breakfast Club where he's breaking down, like, how each of those kids fits into a different category, a different stereotype of high school. Exactly, exactly. So it was kind of like that, but not to an annoying point. Exactly. I agree. I'm also a Carmen, I think. I was a Carmen in high school for sure. As I've gotten older, I think maybe I'm a little bit of a Tibby too. There's a little bit of a mix there. Carmen, I related to her story a lot when I was younger and even now because of some of her family stuff. It was very hard for me to watch the movie when I was a kid. I guess I would have been 15 when the movie came out just because, like Carmen, I'm a child of divorce. And I've talked about this a lot on the podcast before, how different books portray divorce in different ways and the after effects of divorce in different ways. And I really struggled to watch the movie because I related to what Carmen was going through at such a deep level. Not exactly. Like, Carmen's situation is really bad and really upsetting. But I think, unlike a lot of books, The Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants really gets into, like, the true aftermath of divorce. Like, how it affects kids years and years later. And so, it was, like, a very emotional arc for me, both reading it as a kid, watching the movie, and reading it again now. Yeah, and I liked that. I feel like you probably noticed this more than I would, but in other books, it's like, there's oftentimes a focus on the actual divorce, like my parents are separating right now in real time in the story, or my parents are about to get divorced. But what I liked about this, like you said, is that this was many, many years after her dad had moved out and it's still a challenge. And I thought that was probably very real to a lot of readers. Yeah. I think the challenge of, especially as a teenager, the challenge of figuring out your role in a family that's gotten a lot more complicated because of divorce, whether with stepchildren or half siblings that have been added or step parents, no matter how great your relationships are with those people, there are moments, especially when you're angsty and hormonal and all of those things where you feel kind of like mad at the world that you have to figure out how to contend with these dynamics that other people don't have to contend with. And 
that's where Carmen is in this book. And I think it's a really important story for kids who have had to go through that. But even kids who aren't dealing with blended family situations can probably really relate to Carmen's feelings of just like being on the outside when you want to be on the inside. I don't have like such a strong opinion about this or a anything eloquent to say about it. But I thought it was interesting that the author set it up that there was some like racial tension too, or a little dynamic of like, my dad has this new super white family and I don't fit in because a, I'm not part of this family. I don't feel part of this family because these kids are not my siblings. They're not even her step siblings yet. But also she didn't feel part of the family because she's Puerto Rican. And I thought that was like an interesting layer. I'm not sure if it was a good or a bad thing or if I feel any sort of way about it. It was just interesting that that was an added component of it. And I think kind of ahead of its time. Yeah. I don't know that there were a lot of authors maybe that would have been willing to put such a fine point on that. Carmen says to her stepmother, or her soon-to-be stepmother, I guess, Lydia, Mm -hmm. when she gets to her dad's house, she's been totally surprised by this situation. She thought she was just going to go hang out one-on-one with her dad and be in his apartment and play tennis and do all the things that they used to do together. She gets to South Carolina and finds out that he's engaged and has these two new children that he's really absorbed into his life. And apparently they didn't know that she was Puerto Rican. And there's right. this awkward moment where they're like, oh, you don't look like your dad, which is so weird. And she says, you mean I look Puerto Rican? I look Puerto Rican like my mother. My mother is Puerto Rican as in Hispanic. My dad might not have mentioned that. And like right off the bat, as much as I related to Carmen, I was like, you're not even giving these people a chance. Yeah. And I think the scene in the movie and in the book, the scene where she goes for the dress fitting is one that will definitely stood out to me um, and is probably one of the few scenes that like in four months from now, I'll be able to completely recall. It's awkward. And there was an interesting also commentary on different people's having different bodies, but not in the like why teen we're all obsessed with our bodies way. And just like a, I have a different body than you. Yeah, that scene is pretty heartbreaking. I was watching the trailer for the movie this morning. I was thinking about watching the whole movie last night and then I just didn't have time. But I watched the trailer before we recorded. A line from that scene even makes it into the trailer where she's like, you know, that's not going to fit all of this. And she kind of (laughs) like moves her hands up and down her body. And that scene at the bridesmaid shop where the seamstress is like, I'm going to have to get more fabric. It's so uncomfortable and so sad to watch. And I just wanted to kind of yell at Lydia, the almost stepmother, like, come on, I know this is not your kid yet. And I know that, you know, you never met her before, like a week ago. But like, you're the mom in this situation. Stick up for her, like, or do something about this. You just humiliated this girl for something that was easily avoidable. Like, she could have sent her measurements in if she had known about right. the wedding. This whole situation could have been avoided. And also, this is just terrible customer service. Like, yes. Having been to several bridesmaids' dress fittings <laughs> and shoppings at this time, like, by this point, it's hard enough to be in a line of girls and, you know, trying to make everybody feel good about themselves. Right. It's exactly. really unfortunate that Carmen had this experience. We know that Carmen has a temper. She owns that she has a temper. It's Mm -hmm. sort of her defining characteristic. Do we think that Carmen even gave them a shot? Like, was she unfair to the family? Or do you think that all of her frustration was totally founded on, you know, do you think her frustration made sense? I think that it made sense given that these people were kind of sprung on her. I think in 
a different family in a different life. If the dad had called her up and said, Hey, you know, I've been seeing this woman. Hey, I moved in with this woman. Hey, I'm engaged to this woman. And she had known about these people, then maybe the story could have been different. But since she didn't, I didn't fault her for her anger, even though they do seem like perfectly nice people. And it really wasn't their fault that her dad put her in this situation. Yeah. And I totally related again as a child of divorce and who's done the back and forth thing and who did that as a child, that feeling of like never wanting to be mad at your parent. Right. Like it's never about your mom or your dad. It's always Mm -hmm. about the other people involved, the other people that are causing a strain on your relationship. And I think it's hard as a kid to be able to understand that like parents are fallible and parents don't always make the best choices for you. And that doesn't mean that you love them any less, but it's okay to be mad at them and it's okay for you to think about the choices that they've made and how they've affected you in like not such a great way. And I was a little surprised, I would say, that her mom didn't play a bigger role in the book because it did seem like they had a strong relationship, but I was expecting her, I was expecting the mo- her mom specifically, I was kind of expecting all of the moms to have, or all of the parents to have a little more of a role. And it really seems like only Carmen's parents were relevant, minus obviously the storyline about Bridget's mom passing away. But otherwise, the parents weren't really a thing. And I was kind of frustrated by that. I was like, Carmen, why don't you just call your mom and explain the situation? Like she could help you or she couldn't or it's complicated. But I was surprised that the mom didn't play a bigger role. And I think in the movie, Carmen's mom is kind of great. Yeah, she is. And they have a really great like us against the world kind of relationship. And she can talk to her mom about anything. And I agree. Like, I kept waiting for her to have somebody to turn to. But I guess that allowed for the friends to really play that part in the book, which, you know, serves a different purpose as well. There's definitely some parts of the book where the girls are trying to mother each other, Hmm. especially to Bridget. I think for the listeners who aren't up to date on this book, that Bridget's mom passed away at some point a few years earlier than when the book starts. And I think that is more touched on in later books, I would assume. I know it's more touched on in the second movie. But I think the girls kind of step up to have this role in each other's lives, which I don't know. I thought it was a little weird. I was happy that they had each other. But I also, I wasn't really sure if that was like a healthy relationship for the girls to be having with each other. Well, the big piece that I didn't remember from the book, because it definitely doesn't happen in the movie, is that in the last few pages of the book, Lena decides to divert her flight home from Greece to go to Mexico Mm -hmm. and make sure that Bridget is okay after she's had this really uncomfortable, traumatic experience with a boy. And she makes it her mission to go to Mexico to make sure that Lena gets home safely. Yeah. And I loved that because I was like, that's a great example of a true friend. I'm curious your thoughts on the Bridget-Eric situation. Oh, I can't wait to talk about this. First, I'll give a little summary. So Bridget goes to Mexico. She has this coach. When I first read that, I remembered there was some guy in her storyline. When I first read this, I was like, no, no, I hate reading teacher, student, the whole pretty little liars, like young girl sleeping with her teacher thing. Then it kind of redeemed itself because he was supposed to be only a few years older than her and in college, not in a true teacher role. Right. So I kind of let that go. I was like, okay, he's not that much older than her. And even though it was against the rules of the camp for them to be together, it probably wouldn't be against our social norms if they had met in a different context. Mm -hmm. But they 
are building and building and building Bridget flirting with this guy, trying to get him to break the rules with her. And then they sleep together. It seems. Yeah, although, it's hard to say. Like, I was going to ask you about that. Did they have sex? Do you think they did? I think they did, but there's no scene of it. Right. I think they did only because of her reaction, but you don't see it. You're not in that moment, which also was felt. I was kind of like, are you kidding me? We've been waiting for this. Right. And there's kind of this like really hot makeout scene, which I think at that point was probably like the most scandalous thing I'd ever read. I was like, wow, they're kissing. This is so crazy. But then it stops there and you don't know what happens. I'm going to call out Wikipedia, though, because the Wikipedia entry about this book suggests that they didn't have sex and that her plan to lose her virginity failed. And I am like 99.9% sure that they did. Yeah, I really think they did. I don't know who wrote that Wikipedia. I I disagree with them. But um, I think they did. But you don't see that moment, which is interesting and different. And then after that moment, she I don't even know how to describe it. She kind of gets herself in a funk. She won't get out of bed. She doesn't go to breakfast anymore. She loses a lot of her Bridget sparkle in a way and kind of goes into this tailspin. And I had some feelings about it. I had so many feelings. Okay, so here's my first feeling was that I thought it was pretty cool that Anne Brashares managed to make Bridget likable to readers when I think that it's really easy to make a character like this unlikable. Bridget is beautiful and athletic and seems to have a lot going for her. Like, she's not a super great student, but she doesn't worry about it. Like, she knows what's coming for her. She's confident who she is. And I think often that kind of character, especially one who's really aggressive with guys— it's really easy to be turned off by somebody like that as a reader. And for some reason, Anne Shares did this so flawlessly that I loved Bridget anyway. Did you feel that way? Yeah, it's funny because when you describe her, I'm like, this is not a girl I would have been friends with in high school or maybe a girl I would be friends with now. But when you're reading it, you like her and she has a lot of amazing qualities and you're proud of her confidence. You're not turned off by it. Yeah, I mean, Bridget definitely would not have talked to me when we were in high school. Like, we would not have been friends. (laughs) Something that I really appreciated about the Bridget-Eric storyline is that it flips this, like, very common trope about romantic pursuit on its head. And I've been reading a lot, especially in the wake of, like, the Me Too movement and all of that, about how one of the problems that people see about the reason that men often feel like they can push the limits with sex with women is because there's so many stories in pop culture where it's all about like the man continuing to go after a woman over and over and over again even when he's been rejected and how there's still always a happy ending like little boys because of that sort of internalize the fact that like if you set your sights on a girl even if it seems like she's not interested in you if you work hard enough at it like eventually she'll realize that you are prince charming and you'll sweep her off her feet so I really thought it was interesting the way that this book flips that on its head Bridget does not quit she really wants Eric and she does not give up even when he tries to put distance between the two of them. When you're reading it or when I was reading it, I was so invested in this relationship and I wanted it because Bridget wanted it and we like her and we're on her team and we're rooting for her. But when you put it like that, it's hard because if the situation were reversed and Eric were pursuing her or any part of this situation were reversed, it would not be cool at all. 
Mm-hmm. And yet, because it's a younger girl chasing after an older guy, I at least was okay with it. I think that's true. I think, especially where we are in history right now, if the book had been flipped and I was rereading it, it would give me some uncomfortable feelings. I do appreciate that she is not afraid to use her sexuality a little bit within reason. I think that's an okay example for girls to sort of take pride in being women and their femininity. And I think it's neat to read a character that doesn't turn me off in that way. Like, like you said, I was rooting for her and I wanted her to get what she wanted. And she didn't make reckless decisions, I don't think. Her feelings for Eric did develop over time. And as inappropriate as they were, she wasn't throwing herself at him and trying to lose her virginity to him day one. Like she really, in her mind, had planned this out and she was trying to develop a relationship with him. And I think that that's an okay narrative. Um, I think anytime there's sex in a YA book, it's tricky because it's like, how do we feel about the way that the conversation is progressing for readers that might be anywhere from like 12 to 17? What do you think about that? in this book. Yeah, I think it's complicated because on the one hand, I, as an adult 2018, looking back, wanted this to be a more positive experience for her. Right. And I was kind of disappointed, A, because I was rooting for their relationship and I was like, woohoo, go Bridget. But I was disappointed that a child might pick this up and get the messaging that sex is bad. Once you lose your virginity, you know, you're going to lose part of yourself. It's like causes her to... um, feel really sad and alone and not any happy feelings after the fact. And part of me was like, that's a bad message to send. Like, we don't want to be sending the message that sex is some dirty, wrong thing. On the other hand, I also think that there could be a reader picking this up, having had a similar experience and losing your virginity isn't always a positive, wonderful, beautiful thing. So maybe this is real to some readers. I was conflicted about it. Yeah, and the truth is she does end up having like a really horrible first experience. Like you said, we don't get to hear the details of her first time, which I guess given the age group is probably deliberate, but after the fact, Eric essentially turns into like a ginormous asshole. He basically like wants her to forget that it happened. He comes to her cabin after she's disappeared. And I want to read a little bit of what he says to her because it's just so slimy and gross. He says, you took my life by storm this summer. You've been in my bed with me every night since that day I first saw you. The day we swam together, running together, dancing together, watching you play. I know I'm a soccer drone bee, but watching you play was a huge turn on. (laughs) That's why you scare the shit out of me because you're too pretty and you're too sexy and you're too young for me. You know that, don't you? And now, after being so close to you, I can't be around you and not think about what that feels like. Listen, someday when you're 20, maybe I'll see you again. You'll be this hot soccer star at some great school with a million guys more interesting than I am chasing you down. And you know what? I'll see you and I'll pray you want me still. If I could meet you again at a different time under different circumstances, I could let myself worship you the way you deserve. But I can't now. I think the hardest thing for me about rereading that is that when I was younger, I think that I believed him. And I thought that that was like really sweet and thoughtful. Yeah, because it could be read that way. 
it could be read that way. But now looking back, I'm like, we've all known this guy. Like we've mm-hmm. all known the guy who took advantage of of you or of your feelings for him and let things go too far, either physically or emotionally. And then is like, I care about you so much and you're just like too good for me. And I just like can't be there for you right now in the way that you deserve. And we all know how that, how shitty that is. I totally agree. I think that, you know, we're reading that passage one way, but it could totally be read the other way. It could totally be read like you're amazing and we didn't meet at the right time is you know wrong place wrong time but which is true it isn't an ideal situation for them to be together but yeah it it still it still sucks for her and I I feel for her that this wasn't a positive experience that she had hoped it would be but I'm not sure what the reader is supposed to learn from that yeah, it's very confusing because there really are two very different ways for us to read it. One of my other favorite things about Bridget that comes out of this conversation, though, is he basically is, like, trying to apologize for what happened. He's trying to act like it was his fault, mm-hmm. which, you know, I guess, given the fact that he's so much older and knows that the relationship is inappropriate, was probably the right thing for him to do because he was breaking the rules. He, right. I mean, he's 19. She is, I think, 15, like— Technically, that's, like, not legal. That's not allowed. Yeah. And so he comes to apologize to her, and she says, it was my choice to come. How dare he take her power? And I did love that. Bridget, I'm sure, based on that, is going to grow up to be this, like, really powerful, badass chick who, like, doesn't let men define what she does with her body, and I really appreciated that. Yeah, I totally agree. I think it would have been wrong to tell the story of... Bridget pursuing him and then all of a sudden he's the bad guy for what happened. I don't think anyone was necessarily wrong in this situation, minus the fact that he obviously broke the rules of the camp. But as a reader, you don't care that much about that. Or maybe you do. I don't know. I think it's a confusing message. And I wasn't sure what I was supposed to take away. Like, I wasn't sure if this sends a positive message to teenage girls, a realistic message about sex and losing your virginity and relationships with guys, or if it's just supposed to be, this is her story and there are many other losing your virginity stories out there. I think it could go either way. Maybe we'll do a poll on this. I'd be interested to see what listeners would think because I think this is like a really good question to dig into. So maybe we'll do a poll on Twitter and Facebook and see what everybody thinks. So um, if you're listening right now, which is a few weeks from as Katie and I are talking, (laughs) be on the lookout for a poll because we want to know what you think about this conversation. It is upsetting though that she falls into such depression after this happens and I wonder if the implication is that some of it is like genetic because her mom suffered from depression. I think that that was definitely the implication I picked up on. I wish it had been addressed more. I have a feeling that it could possibly be addressed. You know, you have to remember this is a series. She's leaving things to be addressed in the next book or the next book. And especially I know in the second movie, Bridget's mom's struggle and her struggles with depression and losing a parent are more talked about in the second movie, which lead me to believe they're more talked about in the second or third or whatever book. I don't know. I think that again is a confusing message is the message that depression is a genetic thing and it's okay. And it's, an illness and it's part of people's lives and that's a positive message or is it a message that like you are doomed to have to live the lives that your parents lived I think if you were a reader and I'm sure there are many readers who have a parent who struggles with mental illness that's not necessarily the message you want to read and especially because she was only like depressed for for a little bit the last section of the book and again I wasn't sure what message that was sending 
Do you think that if the book had been written today, there would have been more direct discussions about depression and about what had happened to Bridget's mom? I would hope so. And I think that, you know, if you think about, and you've talked many times on the show about the YA that you go back and read versus YA that's published today, YA published today, a lot of it deals with depression, mental health, whether that be in a character's parent or in a character themselves, I would guess, yes, if this were written today, that might be a little bit of a bigger thing. I feel like in 2018, we are maybe not all the way more open to talking about these things, but a little bit more open, especially to talking about suicide. And that unfortunately would be real for readers. It's interesting to think about how this would have been different. Um, I mean, the whole premise of the book is that there's snail mail going on. These girls are writing letters to each other. So the book would have been like wildly different had it been written today. I was trying to think, would there be a comparable thing? And I I don't really think that there would be. And this isn't even that long ago, but still the, the lack of technology that they have is definitely very specific to the time. Yeah, I mean, just the fact that there is a delay between them being updated on each other's lives, I think it adds to this, like the stakes. The stakes are only growing higher in the time that the letters are being sent to the time that they're received. Like mm-hmm. these girls don't know what's going on in between those moments. So I think that raises the stakes a little bit for them. The story that I think was most compelling in the movie for me, was actually the story that was least compelling in the book. And that was Lena. I was shocked by this because this is really what has changed the most from the book to the movie. Where is she? Where is she? She she seems like she's barely here, even in the pages that are her story. And to me, I so imagined her. She like Lena and Rory Gilmer were supposed to be one person in my head because Mm -hmm. they're played by the same actress in the movie and who plays Rory Gilmer on Gilmore Girls. And she's Lena in this book is not is not Rory. No, I don't know who she is. She's this like beautiful porcelain doll who's like kind of mean and really just not interested in interacting with other people. It's sort of beyond introversion. And I say that as a proud, extreme introvert. She is just not that interested in anyone but her friends. Yeah. And I have to say that Effie, her sister, who does not appear in the movie, um, who only appears in the second movie, so I was surprised to see her on the Greece trip with Lena in the book. She's the best character. Number one, I want to be her. If I actually relate to someone, I don't relate to her. I just want to be her. Like She's the star character of this book because she's so nice. She's so normal. She's like, I'm in Greece for the summer. Let's live it up. Lena doesn't say anything. Lena's like, I'm going to go paint alone. Bye. I'm going to paint alone and not talk to anyone. And I don't speak Greek. And Effie's like, whatever. Like, we're here. We're in Greece. Let's go. I'm fooling around with the waiter. I'm like, yes, Effie. Boyfriend? What boyfriend? I don't have a boyfriend. (laughs) I was like, you rock. Why are you the younger sister? Like, she's the younger sister that people are annoyed to have. You're just as pretty or prettier than me. You're so cool. You're so fun. Like, and I was, I was in for it as a reader. I was like, yes, she is the all-star of this family. Yeah. Effie was really cool. Lena's storyline is basically that she just kind of like sits back and lets this massive lie unravel over the course of the summer. In the movie, she falls in love with this Greek man named Costas. It's this secret love affair because their grandparents don't get along and it's this like extremely beautiful romance. I can picture it in my head like there's this five for fighting song that I think was playing in the background and they're swimming in the water in Santorini and it's just like beautiful and he's gorgeous and her grandparents get so mad when they find out she's been having this affair all summer. 
In the book, it's totally opposite because her grandmother's actually trying to set her up with him because they're Mm -hmm. best friends with the grandparents. And there's this little mix-up where Costas accidentally sees Lena skinny dipping, like the one day she decides to do something kind of brave. And she kind of allows her grandparents to operate under the impression that he raped her or like tried to be inappropriate with her at some level. And it causes a huge rift between the grandparents and the best friends who are Costas's grandparents. And she, for the most part throughout the book, like sits back and lets that happen because she's too afraid to talk to them about it. Yeah, I think that's something that if I read that in a book coming out today, I'd be like, no. And I still was kind of like, no, when I was reading it. Not only was I frustrated with Lena, the character, for allowing this situation to sort of get out of hand, but I was a little frustrated by the assumption that we as readers can make a jump between someone saying he's not a nice boy, which is really all she says. She's crying and says he's not a nice boy and her clothes are a little ruffled up because she'd been skinny dipping and didn't have time to put them back on properly, that that all of a sudden means he raped her. Like, I did not follow that logic. I don't know if we were supposed to believe, like, it's crazy grandparent logic. Even so, I didn't follow it. And then I was like, hooray for Effie again for being like, no, that's wrong. You need to tell the truth. The entire plotline made me incredibly uncomfortable. I guess we were supposed to be rooting for their relationship. I wasn't. I was like, Kostas, go back to LSE or wherever he goes. He's also in college. Wherever he goes to school, he should go there and find someone nice and normal who doesn't have weird conversations with their grandparents about him. Yeah, and she basically, like, most of her scenes are just of her, like, moping in Santorini, which is such a waste of time. Yeah, in, like, the most beautiful place. The most beautiful place in the world. Most of the time that she's there, she's just, like, moping about how, like, she's not sure if she should tell the truth. And that's what we get from her. It's such a thin arc. Even at the end, like, all of a sudden, she's like, I'm in love with Costas. I have to tell him. And I'm like, but how are you in love with him? You spent the whole book being extremely awkward and perpetuating this really weird misunderstanding about something that he did to you. By the way, why does he reciprocate with her? They know nothing about each other. They yeah. know nothing about each other. It's really weird. And he's like, yes, I will take your olive painting. Thank you. Like, let's make out. Right. But why? <laughs> she kind of sucks. Yeah, I hate to, I don't want to bash on her. No, it's fine. (laughs) It's just like, she hasn't done anything to make him want her. And he hasn't really done anything to make her want him. It's like a matter of convenience that they get together in the end. Yeah, it's really weird. I mean, I was happy for her, I guess, because I like to think that she can grow. Like, Lena, I think, had the most room to grow as a character. Mm -hmm. And, oh, maybe this will teach her something, you know, even within the confines of this single installment in the series. It's promising to be like, oh, this could be good for her. You know, maybe she can learn something from him down the road. But it was very weird. It's almost like all of these other storylines were so rich. And then the author got to this one and was like, womp womp. They'll buy this. It's in Greece. Of course they'll fall in love. It's beautiful. Like, how could you not buy that two characters in Greece would fall in love? But I think having seen the movie like we have and knowing how great that story is in the movie it's really disappointing in the book version to me her storyline in the movie like you started with is the most memorable like what i remember about this movie is the scenes in santorini and their beautiful shots they have of greece and the beautiful portrayal of that island and they have a nice love story in the movie a little bit complicated but not really kind of a 
mini Romeo and Juliet type situation, but for the most part, a nice love story. And here it was completely lacking. So that was a thumbs down for me. Very disappointing. We could not possibly have this conversation without talking about Tibby, especially because I feel like Tibby probably gets the short end of the stick in life in general, or at least thinks that she does. (laughs) Um, So I guess it's fitting that we're getting to her last. I guess the biggest thing that happens to Tibby is that she meets Bailey. And Bailey is this Mm -hmm. 12-year-old girl who has a fainting attack on the floor at Wallman's, which is the store where Tibby's working. She's stuck at home for the summer while all of her friends are off having these big adventures, which she's already frustrated about. And she and Bailey strike up this really interesting friendship. What did you think about that friendship? What do you think was the significance of Bailey being three years younger than Tibby? I was confused by this storyline, but I think because it's not one I as a reader am comfortable with. The other storylines are pretty much stories that have been told over and over again. Girl-boy stories, girl-father-parent stories. Those are stories we as readers are comfortable with. Tibby and Bailey's storyline is not one that we see every day, either in real life or in books. And while I was a little confused by it at first, I remembered it slightly, but I wasn't sure exactly what had happened. I was excited to have one of their four stories, A, be about something different and be about a different kind of relationship. The other three stories are really either about boys and family and, you know, a mix of those for Lena. And I liked that Tibby's story was about something else. Bailey has leukemia, which Tibby Mm -hmm. finds out a few days after meeting her. And because of that, and she admits this, she admits to Bailey's face, like, I'm kind of being nice to you because I found out that you have cancer, which is something that frankness, I think, is really refreshing. Yeah, honest. Yeah, they had this very honest relationship. They're both very direct. But because Tibby's found out that Bailey has cancer, she lets Bailey help her work on this documentary that she's decided to spend her summer on. And I do want to give a brief shout out to Tibby's documentary because I think Tibby was like so ahead of her time. Like I like to think about Tibby now if she was a teen in 2018 and like she'd totally have a, a vlog and yeah, she'd have a YouTube like, channel. Yeah, she'd have a YouTube channel and she'd have the most awesome Instagram stories. And if there was one character that I'd love to get a retell on in 2018, it would probably be Tibby because I would love to see what she would do with the kind of technology and social media that we have now. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think I wasn't sure what dots we were supposed to connect between Tibby's sort of strange family dynamic to her relationship with Bailey. Um, She has two siblings who are much, much younger than her, but her parents have not been divorced or remarried or anything. They just decided to have some kids later on. It sort of explains that they had Tibby when they were very young, which, by the way, I did not believe. I was annoyed by that. Tell me Um, more about that. Why were you annoyed? (laughs) I'm that reader that no writer wants to have because I'm like, that's not believable. That's not believable. And it's like, screw you, Katie. It's a book. But I like am very nitpicky about things being believable. If you are 19 or 18, however old the mom was supposed to be, and pregnant, why are you going to suburban mommy aerobics class with these other moms? It doesn't true. make sense. True. And they, that's so I felt true. so strongly about this. And they have this whole setup of, you know, Tibby's parents were, they were young and they were traveling so much. And now this is their second chance at a normal family. And, you know, maybe they're 
of a more typical child's birthing age now. They're in their 30s now, even though uh, most of Tibby's friends' parents would be older. And so they have a two-year-old and a one-year-old. But I was still like, no, they're traveling the world. And yet they had four buds to go to Bobby Aerobics. And the mom also seemed to have some like intense, high-powered job. Maybe that was just in the movie that she had a big job. Can't really remember if it was in the book too. She's very busy. Yeah, she's a real star, um, I think. Like she, I think that was the thing that caused them to sort of change parenting personalities or like change their whole persona because she started like going to see fancy houses as a real estate agent. And she oh, was you're like, right. she was like, now we need to live in a nice house. Yeah, it's like, I, now that I'm a realtor, I know what's out there. <laughs> and I know that life with money is, is great. Let's go get some. Like, no. Right. It's like, girlfriend, you live in Bethesda. Like, you know life with money is great. But no 19-year-old couple with a child lives in Bethesda. No. That's a hard no on that. But thanks for trying. <laughs> I hear you. I hear your frustration entirely. I did relate to Tibby having much younger siblings because mm-hmm. I have sisters that are, like, much younger than me. My younger yeah. sister is 10 years younger than me. And so I so understood how she felt like being 15 and like going downstairs and there being toys everywhere and like sippy cups and all that stuff. When I read this, I would have been 11 or 12. And so I had a one or two year old sister. And so I like totally got it. And that's not a story that you hear very often. So I loved that part of it. But I think Bailey was kind of like an escape for her from that. Like Bailey was still older than her siblings, even though she was younger than her friends. And so like that was better than being at home. Right. And I think it was interesting because Tibby does sort of take on an older sister type relationship with Bailey just because of their age difference. That's how I read their relationship. And yet it's a relationship she chooses versus when she's home with her younger siblings, it sort of feels like a job forced upon her to babysit or to help out around the house. And while, yes, she admits that her friendship with Bailey is partially because of Bailey's cancer, she does grow to care very much about her. And I don't know. I thought it was nice. The biggest spoiler alert ever, Bailey dies. Yeah. Which is heartbreaking. And the scenes around it are heartbreaking. And Tippy goes to see her in the hospital, which it takes a while. Tippy doesn't go right away. And ultimately, it's Carmen telling her, like, you need to do the right thing. You have to step up and go. But there's one line that just kind of broke my heart. It says, she would just stay here holding Bailey's hand for all time. So Bailey wouldn't be afraid that there wasn't enough of it. Yeah. Which was so sweet. Do you think that Bailey's sort of tragic end was inevitable? Like, did it have to happen for the book to be what it was? Or do you think that there's sort of another way that the book could have been written where Tibby still could have learned a lot from her relationship with Bailey without Bailey having to die? I think the latter. I think she probably still could have learned a lot from this experience without her death, although without her dying, it might have made it a little more complicated for the author in the later books. She would have needed to continue being around and, you know, that might have been an, I haven't read the later books, so I'm not sure what her legacy is in those. I don't think she had to die, but since she does, I think that her storyline, Tibby's storyline of her relationship with Bailey is the one with the most obvious growth. Like you said, Lena definitely, they all have a lot of growing up to do, I'm not sure how much we see Lena grow up. Bridget, eh. Carmen, a bit. And I think Tibby, a lot. I think Tibby went from sort of being annoyed at the world, angsty, teenage, regular, I work at Wallman's, life sucks, to like appreciating a little more of the people around her, which unfortunately is something that 
death and illness can do, I think, for her as a character in a positive way. Yeah, she gets really good perspective when Carmen comes home and is, like, so angry about everything that happened with her dad. She really just wants Tibby to, like, stew on the world with her. Like, she wants Tibby to get mad. She wants Tibby to do her normal Tibby thing and, like, Mm -hmm. hate everything. And Tibby is finally like, this is not that important. Like, aren't there things that are bigger? And that causes a rift between Carmen and Tibby, but it's really clear evidence of what the relationship with Bailey has taught Tibby and shown her about, like, what her priorities should be. I think it was nice to see a younger character with, honestly, a bit more maturity than the other girls had in lots of ways. And Tibby even says at one point something about, like, does cancer make you wise? Like, does being sick make you more mature, more intelligent? Which... I'm sure for some people, unfortunately, it does. But I was imagining readers who are closer to Bailey's age, like you were when you first read it, seeing like, hey, it's not always the annoying little sister hanging around. Like, actually, the little sister characters between Bailey and Effie, like, they were running this. this Yeah, they they, they, they really, like, came out strong. That's an excellent point. Tibby just has to deal with a lot. Not only does Bailey die, but her guinea pig, Mimi, dies. Yes. And... I I see, like you were saying, like maybe Tibby had the most growing up to do and maybe that's why she was sort of burdened with like all of this death and all of these mm-hmm. really tragic circumstances. But it was heartbreaking that she had to deal with this. I mean, the situation that happens with Mimi is like kind of creepy. Like she hides Mimi in the freezer after she dies and then like lets her stay there. And then once Bailey is buried, Tibby goes back to her gravesite and like puts Mimi like essentially there there with Bailey and I know that there's symbolism to that so I don't want to sound like a total asshole and be like ew creepy there's a little creepy it's a little (laughs) creepy like I understand that what the author was after was like giving Tibby closure but it seemed like there could have been a better way that being said I just think it's interesting that Tibby had to bear like so much tragedy in such a short period of time yeah she definitely had the most going on and you know emotionally in her storyline but my overall feeling about her storyline was just like power to this author for having a storyline about a teenage girl that's new that's different that's unique to this book relatively and isn't about a boy yeah I love a storyline that's not about a boy I think the other cool thing about Bailey is that like Tibby becoming friends with Bailey didn't mean that she stopped being friends with Nina yeah exactly like And generally, that was a cool message about this book. Bridget made friends at camp. Carmen kind of had this weird friendship going with Paul, her stepbrother. People were making other friends, and there weren't conflicts caused among the group. None of the arguments that they had were like, well, you're replacing me. Like, you're making new friends. And I think that's a really important lesson for girls that, like, it's okay to make new friends. It doesn't mean that you can't be BFFs with your core group anymore. So I, I really appreciated that as well. I totally agree. Generally, when I read this book as a teen, I wasn't somebody that had a lot of girlfriends. I was like a little bit of a lonely tween. And then when I got to high school, I had mostly guy friends. So I really was envious of their friendships. That scene where they're like hanging out at the thrift store and like going into the changing room together. I was like, I can't imagine having friends that I'm that close with. And now I'm really lucky to have a lot of really close female friendships. And so reading all of these women's stories, reading about all of their dynamics, 
it was like more emotional this time around just because like I feel like I understand better how important those relationships are and it just it makes me sad that I didn't appreciate it at that level when I was a kid I felt actually similarly I was excited about this book because I was like yes I know this is a story of female friendship I'm all about that but I think unfortunately I didn't read it as a kid but I think unfortunately there are probably lots of middle high school girls out there reading this who can't relate because they don't have this solid female friendship in their life in the same way. It's very hard to at that age, I think, but I was happy for them. And I thought it was a good, a good example of what real female friendship looks like. They didn't have any drama among them, which maybe is not that realistic. Well, they had Carmen and Tibby sort of got in a fight. Right. But for the most part, they were there for each other no matter what. And they weren't that similar. They weren't really like a clique in any meaningful way. We don't see them at school, but they don't even all go to the same school. I think it was just like a true example of what strong female friendship looks like. And I'm lucky to have that now in my adult life, but wish more girls had it at that age. Even the word sisterhood, I think, is very telling and is one that we throw around now a lot more Mm -hmm. in terms of, like, the feminist movement. Um, I think that it's interesting that that's the word that she chose as the title of the book. And I think it's an important one and something that I wanted to make sure I pointed out. Because sisterhood, you know, it could have been, like, just a title that was more generally about, like, friends with traveling pants. I mean, that's a stupid title. But sisterhood is a very specific word and one that I don't know I had heard a lot in 2001 when this book came out. Yeah, probably not. So you didn't read this book as a kid, so we're going to have to change up our final question a little bit. But having seen the movie, and it sounds like you know the movie pretty well and knew Mm -hmm. it pretty well before you read the book for the podcast, has reading the book ruined the movie for you, or has it given you more to love about the story overall? I think it's given me more to love, but I will say I went back and watched the movie before we recorded this. I fell asleep part of the way through, which was not the movie's fault. I was really tired, so I can't (laughs) say that I finished it yet, but it made me love the movie more. Like, And I hate saying that because that's not something I would normally say, oh my God, the movie's better than the book. The only thing that's really fundamentally different in the movie than in the book is Lena's story. And Lena's story was the one I found the least interesting in the book. So I was happy to have the opportunity to read this. I thought it was fun. It was an enjoyable read. It wasn't what I expected. It was a a little younger than I expected it to be. I expected it to be a little more or maybe more similar to contemporary YA um, in some of the themes. But yeah, it made me like the book. It made me love the movie more. Well, I'm so glad. I definitely have to go back and watch the movie now because I need to find out like how much better Lena's story is, first of all, because it is so much better in the movie. And I wonder if like whoever made the movie read the book and was like, all these other stories are really great. If we're going to have Alexis Bledel, we've got to like beef up her story a little bit. Yeah, I mean, she she could not play the Lena in this book. It wouldn't be fair. She was the only one, actually the only actress who was probably really famous at that time because the movie would have come out in the middle of Gilmore Girls. Like, she would have been in between seasons and probably had a super loyal following. So Yeah, that's true. They, like, really needed to give her something good to work with and, like, a super hot guy to play against, which they did give her. Exactly. It's not on Netflix, though. I will warn you. I, I checked, had to. I checked last night, and I because I was going to watch it while I was falling asleep, and I think yeah. it used to be on there, and they must have taken it down. Oh, I hate when they do that. I know, and I'm, I'm getting on a plane this weekend, so I was like, I can download it for the flight. It'll be perfect, so I'm going to have to find an alternative. Am I going to have to pay for it? <gasps> no. One ninety nine rented on iTunes or whatever. It's so hard to do that now that we have all of, we're spoiled with all of these free things. Exactly. 
So is there anything that you're reading now or that you've read recently outside of the Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, of course, that you want to recommend to our listeners? Can I give a biased one? Yes, of course you can. I'll explain why it's biased after I say, but a new book this year, The Female Persuasion by Meg Wolitzer. I think it's one of the best books of the year um, in my admittedly biased opinion. For people who don't know me personally, a few summers ago, I was Meg's intern when she was working on this book. I was connected to her through a mutual friend and seeing the process of her writing this book was one of the most interesting professional and creative experiences I've had so far in my life. She's an amazing person and writer, but even if I hadn't done all of that, I would love this book. And you've read it, right? It's really good. I did read it. We read it for um, my book club, and it's a really good book club pick. There's lots to talk about. Yeah. So I would highly recommend that everyone go check it out. It's good. I love Meg Wolitzer. I'll read anything she writes. I'm so jealous that you got to work with her. That sounds like such an amazing experience. Yeah, it really was. And it's cool to know that like someone who, you know, an author who you're reading and who you admire is like a super nice, normal person in real life, gets tons of notes from her editor, struggles with writer's block, struggles with, you know, the same thing that any person who writes, whether professionally or in their free time, struggles with them. She's a normal, awesome human. Uh, Well, with my writer hat on, that does make me feel a lot better. So thank you for that. Yeah, exactly. Well, I will include a link to The Female Persuasion in the show notes, as well as a link to The Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants for those who want to revisit. I'm not going to say of all the books that we've read for the podcast so far, this is the best. This is one of the better throwback reads that I've done so far. There's still a lot to get out of it as an adult. I would pick this one back up. It's a really fast read. It's fun, especially if you love the movie or if you love the book as a kid. This is worth reading again, so check that out in the show notes. Katie, thank you so much for being on the show. I know you head back to work tomorrow for the new school year, so I hope you have a great back to school and a great year with your new kids. Thank you so much, Allie. This was this was so much fun. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for being on. I'll talk to you later. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.